0: do not be attached to any doctrine. Remember that teachings are, you know, he didn't use this word exactly, but they're only like pointing to the moon. And that, and, and particularly with children, do be very careful about indoctrination or about attachment. And so, just to have the perspective that this is, as it were, an occupational hazard of working with any spiritual principle or practice, that one will be attached because... The teaching is that we all have strong tendencies because of greed, hatred, and delusion to be attached, and so that means that that doesn't, you know, sort of mysteriously leave when we study Buddhism. (laughs) You know, it's it's bound to be there in some way, and so we can look at it how it appears in ourselves, and particularly in terms of views or ideas. How do we how do we actually become mindful that that's present. Well, one thing could be to see um, if when you discuss it with friends or children, there's some kind of charge around differences. You know, that, that you know, looking for there being an emotional charge when, when there are differences that arise with a friend, with um, perhaps with a child, you know. You know, I told you not to be attached. <laughs> or something like that, Uh, and to to look into that. Because particularly, um, one practice which I've used, which is very um, powerful, is to, um, when I notice myself mm, having a difference of view with someone else, it could be spiritual, it could be political, and I notice myself having this strong urge to defeat the other person, that is a very good sign that there's, <laughs> that there's some kind of attachment there. And, we can, and so one practice that's really powerful is to take the noticing of that charge uh, and the noticing of the wish to defeat another person as a starting, we could say, as a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war. And, and just to say, okay, and we can ask questions, you know, we can ask questions. Why do I want to defeat this person? You can use that as inquiry. And this is one of the questions was about using inquiry, right? Skillful inquiry. This, this is, to me, one aspect of very skillful inquiry to ask, what's the charge about? And just kind of ask ourselves, just look, okay, what's this about? You know, why do I want to defeat the person? You know, is there anything possibly in the other person's view that has any merit whatsoever? You know? Radical question, <laughs> Right? And to really ask that and really look and say, do I have something to learn from this person? And, and uh, so that's, that's one way. There are actually a lot of ways to practice with that issue, but that, those are some, some powerful ways to do it. So I'd like to do a reflection just to begin And the theme of the talk today is working with intentions. And I had chosen that theme, the alternative theme that I was considering was the spiritual significance of water. (laughs) But I I want to explore the theme of intentions, and we did that some in the last few minutes of the sitting. And I want to do one more very short um, inner reflection, and the, the, it would be to explore this question. If you had to name two or three of your deeper intentions in your whole life, and this is just for yourself, you won't have to make this public, <clears throat> what, what would those deeper intentions be? What are your two or three main intentions, your deeper intentions? And then a second question, to what extent is it difficult to manifest those intentions in your life? And why do you believe that is? I'd like to come back to that question um, later in the talk and then to some extent also in the discussion. And I'll, I'll talk maybe for 25 or 30 minutes and then leave about uh, 15 minutes, 20 minutes for talking together about this theme of working with intentions. <coughs> and I want to really explore that theme in three main ways. The first is by speaking about the importance of working with intentions. Secondly, by looking some at the notion of karma, because in Buddhist tradition, karma is particularly understood and explicated through the notion of intention. And then thirdly, trying to be very practical and talk about several ways of working with intentions in our daily lives. So that's my, that's my uh, outline, as it were sometimes I, I think that our practice could be um, explicated very, very simply. And it helps me often when I, when I contemplate like that. And one way to look at our practice is to say, moment after moment, we attempt to be mindful, we attempt, we attempt to see what's happening, and then on the basis of our mindfulness we set intentions basically on how to respond to a given situation, a given moment, on the basis of our best wisdom and compassion. And then thirdly, we attempt to act as best we can. So there's a sense there are like three aspects. There's the mindfulness, there's the awareness of what's happening, there's the setting of intentions, and then there's the action. In a way, this is what we do moment after moment. And a large part of the reason that we practice is that we often live without awareness of any of those three dimensions. That is, we may not be very mindful, we may not be very clear about our intentions, and we may act relatively unconsciously or impulsively. I think we, we, we know that uh, sometimes. We can see that uh, in our actions. And one of the reasons we practice is that we bring more clarity to all of these areas. We bring more clarity to just what's happening by developing mindfulness. We start to see and be able to see more of what's going on in our minds and our experience. We bring more awareness to the process of um, setting intention so that we're not so much on automatic pilot. And one of the discoveries in meditation is the extent to which we are on automatic pilot. And it can be very humbling at times. The way that we're acting quite habitually a lot of the time it can be scary sometimes, overwhelming even to look at it. You know, that's why we need that sustained sense of practice to really see that something else is possible, that an alternative is possible. And then we can also see that so many of our actions are also not done with much mindfulness or clarity of intentions. They're just happening. And, and our practice is to let our lives be more and more guided by mindfulness, by our best wisdom and compassion manifesting in intentions, such that our actions follow from the mindfulness and the intentions, rather than simply automatically. And I think we've all had experiences of realizing that we're an automatic pilot, you know. I sort of like the situation sometimes, where I'm in my house and I find myself walking somewhere and I don't know where where I'm going. <laughs> it's an interesting experience, isn't it? You know, kind of like I am going somewhere. There definitely <laughs> is an intention, something behind, but like I'm a sleepwalker, <laughs> you know. And and we sort of say, you know, and sometimes we find ourselves, you know, just going to the refrigerator without knowing why. <laughs> right, uh, I mean, does anyone else have these experiences? <laughs> yeah, so I think so. Whore, um, you know, that, that in some ways can be humorous, but in other ways a lot of uh, actions we see are, are clearly connected with suffering. You know, we can, see peop- we can see a lot of the questions about being with others are no doubt motivated by seeing that sometimes with certain people we just get almost like automatically without any clear intention, just in, you know, scuffles or worse you know, or that we're in organizations where, where, for example, we may not have very clear intentions about how we act together. And I would say, you know, talk, I, ha- I remember a conversation with one friend who's an organizational consultant, and he said that the single most um, single most important cause of problems in organizations is lack of clarity and transparency about decision-making, for example, which, which points to a lack of clarity about intentions within an organization—that—that's res- you know—and think of all the conflicts that you know you know of maybe where you work or in other situations. And a lot of that is linked with um, sort of the organizational expression of of the lack of of clarity about mindfulness intentions and you know, and then um, wise and compassionate action. So it's a very very widespread issue whether we look. Individually, or in organizations, or more uh, broadly in the world, you know that things are happening without much um, clarity. You know, and I, I would say that one of the, you know, one of the great um, problems in our larger culture is again the lack of clarity about intentions. You know, which could be connected with sort of a deterioration of democracy. You know, that that a lot of that has to do with. Lack of clear information about uh, choices, and lack of discussion about actual choices. It's to me that's very linked. It's sort of the social manifestation of the same phenomenon that we know in ourselves, where things just happen. And you know, we have you know, I think we're blessed to have uh, sort of some democratic values, which could be the basis for having clarity of intentions and full information and you know active participatory discussion but those things are often lacking so i like to see all of these as sort of the same 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 set of issues <clears throat> in our meditation practice we start to become aware of what's happening and we start to also become aware that there's always a flow of intentions happening even if we're not very conscious of it when we tune in it's one of the discoveries that one can <clears throat> have on retreats, that, that there are, in a way, always intentions happening. And so sometimes the instructions on retreats, or even, even in daily life, is just to slow down and be aware that when you're reaching uh, to open the door, there's some kind of intention which almost mediates between mind and body. You know Our bodies are not just act, acting automatically, but there's some intention, and it's actually very powerful to actually just tune in and say, okay... There's a stream of intentions happening moment to moment. That, there, in some sense, there's no action without intention. And we begin to be aware of this. The, what's the problem that we typically have is that so many of our intentions are beneath the level of consciousness, that we're not really aware of why we're acting. And so, again, sometimes that's relatively harmless. We don't have to always be aware of the impulse to touch my head or to, you know, be aware of my left elbow moving. But when we come to the kinds of actions that involve um, suffering, we can see that the lack of clarity about intentions does matter. That we may be speaking in ways that if we really reflected on it, we don't want to speak that way. You know, And that's a lot of the attention to right speech comes out of that idea. So part of what we do in, in working with intentions is we tune into the flow of intentions, we start to be aware, okay, what is my intention right now? And we start increasingly to be able to invite our more skillful, our wiser, our more compassionate intentions to be present more and more. So, the, so in a way, we first begin to really look at the phenomenon and see the, the power of intentions to influence action. This is what the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, one of the um, most famous and beloved of the uh, discourses of the Buddha. He says, We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts and intentions. With them we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart." We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts and intentions. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. And there's really a way in which when we can be aware of our intentions we realize the freedom of the present moment. That... Without awareness of intentions, we're more bound by the past and by habits and by the way we've been conditioned to act. And so the whole aim of our practice is to increase the freedom that we have accessible to us in the present moment. And the center of that freedom is clarity about intentions. So, for example, the, we sometimes may think, oh, I'm just a... You know, I'm just a a prisoner of the past or a prisoner of my habits. But the, and some, you know, some psychologists would say the same. You know, there are a lot of psychologists and philosophers who basically say, you know, we're, you know, the nature of being human is just to be on automatic pilot. That because of our conditioning, you know, we can't be other than we are. Uh... You know, and some of you may remember from studying psychology that there's a whole, there are whole schools of psychology which make that claim. One of the most prominent ones in the last, you know, half a century is called behaviorism. It's, it, some of you may I bring back memories of college psychology courses, whatever, but, you're, you know, they thought, that, okay, you have the input, and the input determines the output. Whatever you have put into, it, put into you determines what comes out of you. And there's nothing nothing really in the middle. Um, the teaching, and there were teachings at the time of the Buddha, which were very similar, which were, we might say, deterministic and fatalistic, in saying that how we act is just determined by the past. But I think the point of the Buddha's teachings and the point of this practice is really to stress the moment of freedom, that... Even if we've had difficult things happen in the past, there's a radical freedom when we have awareness in the present moment. Because we can always say, my intention, even though this has happened 50 ways like this in the past, I can intend for it to be different. doesn't mean I always succeed. But it's through mindfulness and clarity of intention, we carve out the space of freedom. And this is, this is very powerful. And that's, in a way, what we can do every moment. For me personally, some of the most inspiring examples of, um, from other people have been to learn from them how even though they've had a lifetime of difficulty, they're not necessarily just rolling over and becoming victims of the past. You know, I was thinking of one friend who had a very difficult childhood, and she said that she you know, is now in middle age, and she continually has voices that tell her, because of what happened in the past, you'll never be happy. You know, this will never happen. You know? And she says, I listen to those voices, and I say no. You know, even though the voices are strong. And I say no, and I say, I want another intention. And we know how hard that is, right? That is not easy. You know, where we think of another big inspiration for me has been like when I would watch the films of the civil rights movement and see African American men and women, particularly older men and women who've had lifetimes of you know relative oppression. And they're also standing up and saying, even though that's been the case, I will not be I will I will not be a victim, I will maintain my dignity, and I also will not turn to sort of reactive bitterness and violence. They're basically saying, you could see that in a sense, even though there were not some political freedoms, there was a kind of spiritual freedom in that very act in the sense of saying, no matter what's happened in the past, I am maintaining the clarity of my intentions and saying, I stand for dignity and I stand for a certain kind of freedom. And you could say, in a sense, there was already the deepest freedom there. No matter, you know, what what transpired on other levels. And you might think of how that, that has been for you, because I think we all have to work with situations where sometimes the voices say, you know, give up or don't, don't keep trying. And the, the beauty of our practice is that it's, it's really a continual invitation to begin again. No matter what's happened, there's a freedom in the present moment that is available, but it's only available when we have some mindfulness of what's happening and some ability to to set intentions freshly in the present moment. So it points to intention practice being really vital for, for our for our work. And I think it's no coincidence, and this is to really to move to the second part, that the Buddha talked about this sometimes mystifying notion of karma as linked very closely with intention. There were a lot of different ideas of the time, and even now, you know, sometimes when we hear karma, you know, we think, what, it's some kind of uh, mysterious, fatalistic calculus of if you do this, then this will happen to you, you know, that if you, if you say a nasty word, you know, um, if you say a nasty word to your partner in the morning, at lunch, at work, you'll have a, you know, a bug in your... Soup or something, <laughs> you know, or some version of that, or you know, like I remember um, you know, a little while ago. I think we just, uh, particularly in this kind of subculture, I think people go there, you know. I remember once, uh, just a little while ago, I had a friend who visited for a while, and she, um, you know, the, you know the the, um, she used the toilet and it got clogged, and she said, "Oh, it's my karma." <laughs> you know uh and i think I think we sometimes do that, and I think it's actually not really the core of what the Buddha was talking about in terms of karma, even though somehow it's entered into the culture because I think it's I think the kind of fatalistic interpretation of karma is more a misinterpretation of karma uh, The Buddha at one point said this he said um He linked intention with karma. He said, It is intention that I call karma. For having intended, one performs an action through body, speech, or mind. And so that understanding of karma is more or less saying how we intend, so we will set up the tendencies in the future. If I act with kindness, I will strengthen the tendency to be kind. If I act with meanness, I will strengthen the tendency to be mean and it will be more likely to occur in the future. And this is how he understood karma. So it means that at every moment we're influencing our future. Every action, it's also another way to see that every action is important. You know, that everything we do is in some way influencing what comes next. And it's a reason to um, value just the practice in the moment. There are a lot of misinterpretations of karma, like the one I gave, and it's been, it's been used and misused. Sometimes it's said that uh, because someone is suffering in the present moment, it's that person's karma. We have that notion, oh, you're ill, it must be your karma. You know, we have, that's kind of in popular culture to some extent, right? And I think that's really a misinterpretation, that, that we can really look at karma... The Buddha, in his core teaching, he linked karma with intention, and that um, but i 've heard all sorts of stories. I had friends who tell me that sometimes in Asia, um, women are told that if they 're suffering domestic violence it 's their karma, and they should just be equanimous and wait for the karma to wear out you know and we know from we know that that doctrine's been misused in many ways to be sort of fatalistic and encourage people to be, um, you know, in some cases to um, accept oppression, basically. You know? And I think if we come back to the notion of intention, we can cut through that kind of misinterpretation. There's an, in, there's an important passage which, which is related to this, which is from the Buddha. The Buddha was once asked, and this is, I brought, I brought the text in, it's, it's in the... Uh, Samyutta Nikaya, which is the collection, it's called the Connected Discourses. And uh, someone asked the Buddha, um, when a person experiences pleasure or unpleasant, or displeasure, or let's say just pleasure or pain, in the present moment, is that pleasure or pain due to the actions from the past? Which would suggest that if you're experiencing something unpleasant, it's because of your karma, Right? It's because of your actions from the past. Because karma is simply, in the Pali and Sanskrit language, is simply the word for action. It's literally just means action. So that, you know, you know if someone would ask you, what's in, in colloquial language at that time, how are, you, how are you going to act in response to what this person did? The word that would be used would be karma. It's, it's simple uh, and, and everyday a word just as our word, action. That's how it's, and that would be a literal translation, would be action. And so the Buddha is basically saying, is all pleasure and pain due to one's, the, one's own personal actions in the past? So that again, if you, if you have something bad happen to you, it means it's because of your karma. And the Buddha very explicitly says no. That's, that's an incorrect understanding. And at that point in the discourse, he says, there are eight causes for why things are as they are. And he says there are environmental causes, there are biological causes, there are a number of different causes, and karma is one cause among eight. It's a very important passage that I wish was looked at more because it really cuts through that kind of misinterpretation of karma. Um, But I think if we come back to the notion of karma as focusing on intention and think of karma as this setting in motion of tendencies based on how we are in the present, then I think that that really, again, points to the radical freedom of the moment and also gives us a way to avoid some of those misinterpretations. So the the last thing I want to say is how do we practice then with intentions? If we want to work more fully with intentions... What are some ways to practice with it? And I want to suggest uh, four different ways to practice with intentions. And I think they're very much ways to work in daily life with intentions. The first is to simply try to be more mindful of intentions. Just we can ask ourselves at different moments, for example, during the day, what's my intention? What do I really want? What am I, um, you know, or what what intention is manifesting in the way I act? You know, Um, is there an unconscious intention that's sort of taken me over? You know, how, when I find myself in the midst of an argument, what is the intention that's ruling me? You know, and then we can use that as a starting point for inquiry. You know, what's really there? Maybe there's some, if I find myself continually uh, sparring with a friend. Maybe there's something beneath the surface I need to look at. And so intentions can be very, very important. Um, Just to look at intentions, um, see what they are, see what's what's going on. You know, if this was, um, if we were in an organization, we could ask, what are the intentions that are implied by the way we act with each other? You know, what are the intentions that are uh, beneath the surface that are manifesting? It can also bring us back to ask ourselves, what are, what are the intentions which I more deeply want, which I truly want? And I think that's a, a second kind of practice, is to really keep on touching our deeper intentions, to find ways during the day to come back to um, the intentions which we hold to be uh, more valuable or that we hold to be more dear. And I think one of the problems of our lives is that we get so busy that we forget our deeper intentions. You know, it's just, it's almost like a a cultural problem that we just get so busy and we we say, oh my, you know, I remember when I was first um, starting out as a teacher, I would just get so, you know, like, you know, I was like um, 30 years old and I was trying to, I was, I had a job at a university and I was just trying to teach and it was kind of just like Almost like survival, just to get things done, to you know, function somewhat in the in teaching and so forth. And I would, and I, I had been uh, meditating a lot before that. And I would sometimes find myself. I always scheduled retreats after the ends of my teaching cycles. And when I would go on retreats, I would sometimes say, you know, say, what was that last three months about? You know, what was that about? In some ways, partly because of busyness and just you know some things that are very understandable. I think I had lost intimate contact with some of my deeper intentions and values. You know, I think that happens to a lot of us. That's why retreats are so wonderful, because they kind of call forth what's deeper, or or, uh, just taking open time, or, you know, sometimes going on vacations, just having that free space. And there also are practices which we can do which bring forth the deeper intentions. We We can have periods of reflection and just ask ourselves, what do I really want, you know? What do I want in this job, in this relationship? You know, my parents told me the, that before they got married, they sat down on a bench and said, <laughs> what are your deeper values? And what are mine? And they talked with each other, and they made sure they were matched up. <laughs> you know, And it, it really that was an intention practice, wasn't it? Mm. It was really clarifying intentions and saying, what are the deeper values? And then we have to somehow find ways to make them um, work in our daily lives, and you know, one way that I often use, and many people use, is to um, set an intention, like at the beginning of the day. You know, it's something to do, maybe in the last few minutes of your meditation. Just say, okay, what do I really want? What's important for me? What do I want to focus on today? Let me focus on uh, wise speech today. Let me really try to remember to be there with my speech, or let me focus on being aware of my intentions today. We can't usually intend too many things, but if we have one deep value that we focus on, it it can often help. Um, It's very valuable uh, also to have these rituals where we come into our deeper intentions. At the end end of our session here, I like to do what's called the dedication of merit, which is a traditional Buddhist ritual where we remember that we're practicing not just for ourselves but for others and we offer what's valuable from our time together out into the world. That's a kind of intention practice. It's reminding ourselves of of what's deeper. A third kind of practice, which isn't all that different from the, the one I just mentioned, is to actually set intentions for specific activities. To actually, before we have a meeting, just to take 30 seconds. And one of the great things about intention practice, it doesn't take very long. The difficult thing about our practice, generally, is to remember to practice. It's not difficult to practice, it's difficult to remember to practice. It's difficult to come back to our intentions. And so, just to take 30 seconds almost, you might try it as a practice, you know. Just take 30 seconds before a meeting and say, what's my intention for this meeting? How do I want to be? It doesn't mean that we remember it all the time. But that setting of the intention can have great power. And Or we can say, you know, we're having a discussion with a friend. How do I want to be in this next, you know, half hour? And just check in. One of, one of the benefits that I think the Buddhist Peace Fellowship brought to some of the demonstrations... After, or before and after the invasion of Iraq, was that we, we would be at the demonstrations and we would be meditating and bringing mindfulness, but we also invited people, before the demonstration would begin, to really be in touch with their intentions. And I had a number of people uh, tell me that they couldn't be there otherwise, that they didn't, you know, because there's a lot of mixed energy at those things, right? A lot of different kinds of energy. And they, it was a way of staying in themselves. You know, it was, it was like one of the questions that was given for a theme. How do I stay in myself when I'm in the midst with others? And intentions are very powerful. Powerful way to do that. Sometimes I'm at meetings and I write down my intentions on a piece of paper and I keep it right in front of me. And I look down on it. I look down at the sheet and other people can't quite see it. I look down and say, okay... Oops, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> you know, and, and it's just that coming back to intentions. And so I think there are all these creative ways that we can have to set intentions. I like to think of having a moment of silence before a meal as a kind of intention practice. People just say, let me come, you know, come back. Or some of you know the practice of Thich Han, to ring a bell at a meeting every 20 or 30 minutes, which brings people kind of to a stop. And they come back to their intentions. I've seen, you know, we use that a lot in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship meetings when I was on the board there at our meetings. And sometimes, you know, and usually there's one person who's assigned to be able to ring the bell. And sometimes that person would do it very skillfully. There would be some kind of verbal tension or something happening. And the person would go, ding, and everyone would stop. And half the time, whatever was tense would just dissipate, you know. Partly because people came back and were able to say, what do I really want? What's happening? You know, and it's, so it's there are very, very powerful practices there. And then lastly, uh, another beautiful way of using intentions is to explicitly work with intentions in times of difficulty. You know, When there's a difficult moment, come and say, what's really important to do? How do I want to act? How do I want to respond? And almost train ourselves so that when we get into a difficult moment, we go more and more to coming back to our intentions. And you know, one manifestation of this is, uh, uh, is Sylvia does a kind of internal monologue, which I think is like this. And I, if, if you let me have the liberty of channeling Sylvia at this moment, um, you know she does this internal. Dialogue, which I think is really a kind of intention practice, where she'll say something like, things aren't going so well, are they, Sylvia? No, they're not. You're suffering a little bit, aren't you? A little bit. Maybe more than a little bit. What, what should we do? I don't know. What should we do? <laughs> oh, I know what to do. Let's do this. And it's that, that's an intention practice, and it's, it's so simple, isn't it, really? Really? But it's just really saying, let me try to set an intention, as opposed to just follow my automatic reaction, you know. And it's so it's it's uh, it's so powerful, and it's powerful personally. It can be very powerful in groups or communities or organizations. Maybe I think I'll end. Uh, I'll end with one story and then one. Um, uh, Um, one idea that I got from the Dalai Lama. The story is that um, I was visiting once in a Buddhist community in England where uh, Stephen and Martine Batchelor lived. Some of you know Stephen and Martine Batchelor. They're both authors, very wonderful people. And Martine told me a story of their community. There was like 10 or 11 people living in this old mansion and offering teachings sometimes to the community. And they had kind of an open-door policy where people could come and visit, and sometimes even live there for a few days. And they were having one house meeting, and everyone was completely complaining, we've got too many visitors, it's so irritating, you know, let's get rid of them. <laughs> and they, and they talked like that for an hour. And then someone said, what about compassion? And it was as if they were going back to a core intention, which all of them had forgotten, because they were so irritated. It didn't, didn't mean that they didn't, you know, sometimes set some boundaries, but they, just the, the invocation of one of their deeper intentions cut through an hour of, you know, talking back and forth because it reminded them of their intention. And, and that, so that can happen in groups and organizations, uh, you know, if the intentions, uh, if the deeper intentions of the group are, are alive and are, are if the values are alive. And the last... Um, I think I want to say There's a beautiful, uh, there was a beautiful discussion that the Dalai Lama was involved with where he was asked, you know, you're accused of all sorts of things. You know, the Chinese call you all sorts of names. You're called a counter-revolutionary, a wolf in sheep's clothing. You get a lot of criticism. Some of the young people think you're not doing enough. You know, you're just... You know, things are, you know, still pretty bad. What do you do with all that? And he said... I listen to them, and then I listen for my own intention. And if my own intention is sincere, I rest in that. Then a moment later he's asked a question. You hear all sorts of um, horrible stories. You know, refugees from Tibet come and talk with you. They often give stories of torture. You know, how do you deal with the pain? How do you deal with fear that might come? And he he went right quickly and said, I listen, and then I listen for my own intention. And if my own intention is sincere, I am not afraid. So I'll, I'll end there. Thank you.